Please stand for the reading of the message. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. So you're not getting a poem today. Once again, I found something different. This is a book that's sort of held together with tape and a variety of other things. It's written by Rachel Naomi Remen, who some of you may have heard of. She is a Jewish doctor who works primarily with cancer patients. Um, right now, Rachel Naomi Remen has retired. She's somewhere in her early 80s. This was given to me by my massage therapist when I was in Washington and happened to be on my, car, on my coffee table the night of my fire. So there was a book on top of it, and you can see where this is ash and this is not. So, and it's very sooty, but the words are still in it. <laughs> so I replaced Carrie Ann's book and kept this one for myself. This is entitled Teachers Everywhere. And while it is not scripture, I would say, listen for the word of God. I can clearly remember something that happened when I was in third grade. I was walking with my mother on a downtown street in New York City, pushing through crowds on her way to I no longer remember where. I had done well on an IQ test, and my new teacher had told us that being in her class meant that we were brighter than most of the people in the country. As we moved through the hurrying crowds, I remembered this and was filled with an eight-year-old's outrageous pride. 
I told my mother that my teacher had said I was smarter than most of the people around, around us. She stopped walking immediately and knelt down so that we were at eye level with one another. As the crowd flowed past us on either side, she told me that every single one of the people around us had a secret wisdom. Each of them knew something more about how to live, about being happy, about loving than I did. I looked up at the people passing by and they were all adults. Is this because they're all grown-ups, Mama? I asked her this, taken aback. No, darling, it will always be this way, she told me. It is how things are. I looked again at the crowd moving around us and suddenly I wanted to know them all, to learn from them and to be friends with them. This lesson became lost among all of the others of my childhood. But shortly after I became a physician, I had a dream that was so powerful that I remembered it even though I didn't understand it. In this dream, I'm standing at the threshold of a door. I seem to have been standing there a long time. People are passing through the door. I can't see where they're going or where they've come from, but somehow this doesn't seem to matter. I meet them one at a time in the doorway. As they pass through, they stop to look into my face for a moment and hand me something, each one something different. They say, here, here's something for you to keep. And then they go on, and I feel enormously grateful. Perhaps we are all standing in such a doorway. Some people pass through it on their way to the rest of their lives, lives that we may never know or see. Others pass through it to their deaths and the unknown. Everyone leaves something behind. When I awoke from the dream, I had a sense of the value of every life. That almost deserves an amen. amen. <laughs> I rarely use a crib sheet, but I'm going to today, okay? When we talk about compassion, we often think of it as being only a religious word. We don't really think about compassion unless it has to do with an organization that has compassion in their title. Now, I don't know if Compassion Coalition is a thing around here. Compassion Coalition is a thing in central New York. And they, they have um, like a grocery store that they buy odd lots of food and whatnot and sell it really, really cheap. And usually a Compassion Coalition grocery store shows up in a really, really you know, poverty-stricken neighborhood. It's not something that ends up in the neighborhood that I live in. Sorry. But... I was looking for different definitions of compassion, and I came up with this whole list, and it was really interesting to me that compassion is kind or kindness. And so even though I talk to the kids about the kindness, I think if we became a kinder nation, we would understand compassion more. Compassion is curious without assumptions. 
I find it interesting that a lot of times we look for things because we're curious. We want to know what it means or what something is, but we already figure that we, we have a better understanding than we could ever find out by just being curious. Now, I've showed some of you a picture that my daughter sent me yesterday. She and her husband and my granddaughter went fishing yesterday, and they caught these giant fish, three giant fish. And I said, what kind of fish is that, anyway? And I asked, because I kind of like fish, and I figured they had three of them, and so they can share, right? And yet, I was curious about what kind of fish it was, not just for my own personal gain, but I was just curious. And I also wanted to know where they were. And so my daughter sends back this note, Salmon, Lake Ontario, yes, you can have some. <laughs> and so, so now I'm really excited to go back. But I didn't assume that I knew, I was just curious. Compassion is presence. One of the most important lessons I learned in seminary, in a pastoral care class that was taught by Sister Joan Marie Smith, who was a sister of St. Joseph, and she's right up there as far as really cool ladies who gets it. And Sister Joan Marie said, when you go into a hospital room or to visit someone in their home, do not go with an agenda. Go to be present and to listen. That was brilliant. <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant to know that you don't have to go in saying, what am I going to say or what am I going to do that's going to be profound? You just need to be there. And she went further to say that 90% of the people who are either in the hospital, in a nursing home, or, or, or who are homebound, just want somebody to hear them and to be present with them. They just want human connection. I mean, that could have been a class in and of itself, and I didn't have to go back for anything more. It was worthwhile just to be there for that nugget. Compassion is seeing the best, seeing the beauty in the world. How often do we spend time talking about what's wrong or what's ugly and forgetting to see the beauty? My house in New Hartford is situated in such a way that if I sit at my dining room table, I can see the sunrise which I do virtually every morning because I'm up way too early. And in the evening, I can see the sun set from my living room. Now, most of the time I'm facing, my back is to the window, but I remember often enough to turn around and look to see the sunset. When I bought the house, I didn't realize that that was its orientation and it's on the top of a hill, which my father would have loved because he always wanted to live on a hill with a view. 
but there are mornings that I will be moved to tears by the sunrise, when the whole sky is pink. And if it's in the winter and it reflects off the snow, it's an amazing thing to see. And in the winter when the sun sets at some ridiculous time like four o'clock in the afternoon, to watch that sun go down through the bare naked trees is beautiful. And when the sun comes up on a, one of those bitter cold days when the ice just sparkles like it's glass, it's an amazing thing to see. And I do some of my best journaling when I am sitting at the table watching God's creation unfold in front of me. There's too much beauty in the world to be stuck in what's ugly. There's plenty of ugliness, too, but we need to balance those things. We need to remember that what God created is beautiful, and what we've created, maybe not so much. Compassion is mystery. We want everything set down to be completely and totally definable and explainable. We want answers to all of our questions. I think that's one of the things where the church falls down is that we don't help people to be comfortable with mystery. Mystery is fun. I mean, I know people who read mysteries, but they don't really get any pleasure until it's solved. And I would challenge anyone here to explain to me what happens when we die. We don't know all the particulars of what is going to happen. We trust the promises of God, but we don't know for sure exactly what's going to happen. And the mystery is part of the journey. The mystery is kind of like that door that doesn't get opened until the last minute. Compassion is tender. We're not about tenderness as much as we used to be. Tenderness with our children is something that I believe should be a natural response to little kids, babies. But we hear too much where tenderness is not part of many children's lives. And we don't really know what to do about that. So we, who are Christian people, put on blinders and choose not to see things that are unpleasant. So when we talk about tenderness, tenderness with one another. It's not something that's silly. It's something that's necessary for us to live together in community. But we've also lost our sense of community in many cases, and we like to live in our isolated pods and come together once in a while, but not to get too close. We don't want to get too close, because if we get too close, we might be expected to be responsible 
for something for that person. So I would add that compassion is accepting responsibility. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is I found in a podcast a woman who was saying that compassion is every bit as relevant in the secular world as it is in the sacred world. Which tells me that compassion is something that we need as part of being human beings. Compassion is something that should be ingrained in us, and I'm not big on shoulds. But it is a part of us. It's part of how we're hardwired. But because we have this obsession with perfection, and we have sort of an obsession with hiding our problems. Anybody ask anybody else how you are today and what do you say? Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. Fine is an acronym for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Most of us are not fine. Most of us have something going on in our lives that we wish we could tell people, but we don't trust one another enough to do that, and we don't trust ourselves enough to share what is really going on inside. We don't like to share our frustrations with other people. I've kind of dumped a little bit this week. Thank you, Judy. But I have dumped some frustrations that I have and then spent half a day feeling guilty about it because why would I even bother somebody else with my stuff? Until I realized that we're all in this mess together. And if we can't share with one another, all we're doing is letting things eat us up. Compassion recognizes problems. I see your problem, what can I do to help? Compassion is not about solutions, but it's about signs. Signs along the way that we can see where can we be part of a solution. But the compassion itself is not the solution. Saying I hear you doesn't solve anything but saying, I hear you, validates the person who is telling you something important. Compassion is mostly about changing ourselves, not changing the world. And another little piece, another little nugget I picked up was that strategies and statistics have nothing to do with compassion. Strategies, strategic plans, statistics make people who don't want to be compassionate feel like they are doing something. When I read that, I was a little bit upset because I thought strategy that I use all the time is making lists talked about it last week, a big list maker. Got a lot of validation for that during the week. A lot of people told me, oh, so am I, I make lists too. 
but that's not being compassionate. It's also limiting us by saying, I've got this, this, and this, and this to do, and I don't have time to listen or to be present or to hear somebody else. Some of you have heard me say that real ministry happens in the interruptions. And I truly believe that. That I can plan a day out and have a long list of what I need to accomplish on that day and have one person come into the office or one telephone call that someone is in the hospital or one request to do a funeral and that interruption becomes the most important thing in that day. I had a secretary once who got very angry because we had two funerals in one week and she had to do two funeral bulletins and a Sunday bulletin and she didn't sign up for that. And I said, well, I will ask people to schedule their funerals for the next six months and see how that works out. She quit. Which was a blessing, I might add. A blessed subtraction. But sometimes we get caught in what is in our job description or what we are called upon to do and we get really, really stuck there and forget that we're part of the human condition. Every single one of us is carrying something that we're worried about, that we're afraid about, that we have concerns that are deep. And part of being the people of God is we see that in one another and offer kindness and compassion to listen and to be present. It's so hard sometimes to look at life through a different lens. We've been conditioned that success is what counts. We've been conditioned that our bank accounts and our cars and our homes are what define us. And what really defines us is our relationships. And you'll hear me say this all the time because it's really profound, folks. This is the only profound thing I have in me, okay? That our relationships have to do with our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. And when you put that together, what do you get? It's not a rhetorical question. I expect an answer. What do you get? Okay, you get the cross where those two things intersect our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. That's where real life takes place, folks. But if you're on either end of the continuum of relationship with God, at the very bottom or the very top or at the far sides, you are still connected by all those things. So remember that your relationships are the most important thing. And the rest of what you do is gravy. Now, I happen to like gravy, but it is not necessarily the most important thing in my life. What is important 
is you, as individuals, and as a congregation. And your relationships, and your relationship to God.